why you probably need an estate plan, how financial advisors provide value, and why young Americans would rather talk about their sexually transmitted diseases than their debts. This is Your Money, Your Wealth. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe and Big Al explain the difference between a will and a trust. And they'll tell you why your family will love you for putting sticky notes on that collection of commemorative plates. They'll also talk to Don Benihoff from Vanguard about target date funds and something called Advisors Alpha. And the fellas bust open the email bag to answer questions on Roth conversions, taxation on day trading stocks, tax write-offs on retirement contributions, and why some great companies have low stock prices. And yes, they'll also discuss the recent SoFi survey where millennials said they'd rather disclose a pre-existing STD to a potential partner than to reveal their debt. Prepare yourselves. Here are certified financial planner Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine CPA. Exciting show lined up. We're going to get into estate planning today. We sure are, Joseph. Because I think, uh, you know, just simple things that people should know. And there's also, for you folks that live in uh, Southern California, or California in general, there's that new uh, TOD for primary residents. Because owning your real estate, TOD means transfer on death. And that actually avoids probate. It sure does. And that's uh, that's that's an alternative to getting a living trust. So we're going to talk about death. <laughs> what else do you got? You going to talk about diseases? <laughs> yeah, diseases. Well, speaking of, um, see, I, I wasn't going to go here, Alan, <laughs> but I set you up. You did. You set me up because all right. So our crack research team always comes up with good articles, and these yeah. people that write these articles, they catch your eye. Yeah, with the snappy titles. Yes. What's so the, the title? This is Financial Advisor Magazine. And young Americans would rather disclose their STDs than their debts. Really? Yes. And we talked about student loan debt and student loan. I thought loan you were going to say we talked about STDs. No. I don't recall that before. No, no. That was off the air. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we were. So th- this company called SoFi, have you heard of SoFi? No, I have not. SoFi is a good company, it's a student loan company. Okay. And so how they, um, and we're not affiliated with SoFi. It seems like we always have to give this disclaimer. We sure do, because there's <laughs> compliance always. Sure. But they look at, like, let's say if I want to refinance my student loan debt. Right. All right. And I'm a physician, and I have a couple hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt, but I don't have a paycheck yet. Right. And my FICO score might not be great because I got a lot of debt, and I now am going to make X amount of dollars. So they have a different way of how they categorize who's approved and who's not approved. And so SoFi came up with this and said, um, you know, since it's Valentine's Day coming up. <laughs> sure. And so, so there's a tie somehow. Yeah, I guess student loan uh, company SoFi has thrown its hat into the ring uh, with the old standard of, um, or <clears throat> standby of Valentine's Day. Okay. Uh, but they're marketing called V-Day. Oh, boy. All right? <laughs> and then to shorten it up, it's VD. Yes, of course. So so here was the pitch. Okay. okay? It seems 39% of millennials would rather disclose a pre-existing sexual transmitted disease to a potential partner than reveal their debt. According to a survey of 2,000 millennials, SoFi conducted uh, using uh, SurveyMonkey. Okay. In addition, this survey found that serious debt was the second biggest romantic deal breaker after workaholism. Really? Yes. Okay. I didn't know that. And where's STD? I don't know. I guess didn't say. It's, it's lower. It's okay. <laughs> it's, I don't know. Do you work bad. a lot? If you as, have debt, you're out of the picture. Not as bad. <laughs> it's not as bad. But okay. all right. So they interviewed a couple of people. Uh, this individual, she remembers how she was eighty-one thousand dollars in debt after getting her bachelor, uh, bachelor's degree in theater um, at the Cal State University of Long Beach. Okay. And a master's in performance studies at New York University. All right. So she couldn't find a job in her field. Well, I don't know. When theater and performance. You think you'd get right in? You, I don't know what job she was or she was looking for. <laughs> so then after graduation, she was forced on food stamps and working for a 10-hour uh, job in Portland. And so she remembers how heightened... And she, she felt embarrassed sure. by going to you know high-priced schools and things. She thought she was doing the right thing, right. working part-time, and uh, everything else in between there. And this is going to be a big deal, right? I, I think this is just at the cusp of student loan debt. It's now more than consumer debt, and we'll see some tumbling effects uh, when it comes to this. 
But I guess, what's your advice having two children? And I, I don't want you to go on your rant. Well, you know my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> my, my feeling is that uh, students and their parents should look at this more like a business. And so they should look at, all right, what degree am I getting? How much is it going to cost? And how am I going to be able to pay that off? Right? And so if it's performing arts, you know, wonderful. I, I love it. But have a plan to pay it off. And if you don't have the money, let's not, I wouldn't recommend going to the more expensive universities because you could hit a big, but the likelihood is you won't. And, and it's, right. And it, if I want to be a Hollywood actor, it's going to be, I mean, what's the percentage? It's, it's just like it's, a professional it's, it's not high. Right. So, I mean, if you're going to get trained in theater, then pick a state school, right? Even masters, do it while you're working so but you don't I, have I this debt. I think there's a lot of value, though, to performance. Because I think with any job that you have, especially if you deal with people, right? There's a, a level of showmanship. I think there's no question about that. In fact, you, you you know as well as I that the 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 folks that have great people skills are the ones that advance in any company in any endeavor. Right. If I'm a CEO of a company, you know, I have to relate to the employees of right. that firm to motivate them to get them inspired. And if you don't necessarily have that type of performance skill, I mean, if you're dry as a bone and very analytical in everything that you discuss. I mean, you could be the smartest guy in the room and right. b- probably have the best ideas, but are those ideas going to be heard? Right. So I think it's just looking at, all right, well, maybe um, that's my passion to be an actor or an actress, but understand, hey, there, there's a fallback plan. You know, if I'm not going to make it in Hollywood, you know, what is that? What's Plan B look like? Yeah. And really make sure that you have that Plan B in in place. I, I think that's a good point, Joe. So, I mean, I guess my advice would be. Your major would be something more practical, but then you minor in theatrical arts. And I know some of you will say, well, if you're going to make it, you have to go for it all in. And I understand that, too. And for some people, they want to go all in. I'm just saying you got to consider the finances here. And I think in, in a lot of cases, the students and parents have not. And that's why student debt is ballooning and it's becoming a big problem. Because, well, there's a lot of issues, I think, with the student loan debt is that it's a lot easier to get that money. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, the universities are increasing their pricing and everything else. Because they can get because the Because they money. can, because they because can get the, loans, the money. Right? I, I mean, mean, it's a it's a circular thing, You right? got it. I mean, the same thing happened in 2008 in the housing crisis. Right. Right? It's just, all right, well, here, it's really easy to get a loan. You know, let me get a $600,000 mortgage right. when so, I don't necessarily yeah. have the finances to cover, you know, the payment. Yeah, Maybe I right. do an interest-only loan for whatever and then next thing you know, oh, that resets. Now I have my my payment went from twelve hundred to four grand. Right. Uh, oops, I can't afford this. You're right. 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 And so it's just being, I guess, practical on what you're trying to accomplish too. And when it comes to schooling, right? And I'm a recent grad, right? Twenty years ago. <laughs> That's loosely said. <laughs> Thinking, what are, where are you going with this? Yeah. Well, look, last year, something yeah, I didn't right. know about. Yeah, just fresh out of college. You've been faking it for a while. Yes, but it's um, it's important, too, I think, to network early, to get context early. Because uh, Al and I interview a lot of individuals with our firm. And you know who gets in for the interviews first? Are people that might have referred in that we might know. Right. Either through a client saying, hey, you know what? I have this niece that she is really interested in finances. Can she come in and mirror, you know, one of your financial planners for a day? Or it could be someone that uh, another colleague that we work with, um, maybe an an attorney or CPA firm. Hey, there's this individual that, you know, I vouch for. You know, do, do you ever, well, we might not have room today, but we'll interview that person versus just getting a cold resume, you know, through your email box. It's pretty challenging. Challenging to you know because most of the time it's like delete you know right. I don't it, necessarily have time and you know well, half the resumes that that we see yeah and and you know when you get those resumes in, via email you know they've probably sent out five hundred right just kind of a shotgun approach and hopefully someone will respond and I'm not saying you shouldn't do that but you're absolutely right Joe and that's true of anything I mean whether you want a contractor to fix something in your home you want a referral from a neighbor our, our fence blew down in the in the uh, last winter. The major storm of yeah, the, the major storm of 2017. So what do we do? We went to our neighbor, two houses down, the, Wool, the Woolways, right? Yeah. Because their fence blew down about six months earlier. They're, I guess they're all going down right now. <laughs> 
28 years old. That's, I guess, how long they last. And so they have a person. I, I went, and he was actually doing another fence in the neighborhood. I already got another referral. I looked at his work. He gave us a great price. I saw great. So, yeah, of course. I'm going to hire him. I don't even need another quote. Or, or you can, like, kiss ass, too. Philip, our intern, right? He's a smart. He's um, getting his degree at uh, San Diego State University in San Diego. Yes. Right? Sends me an email. Says, Joe. I'm a huge fan of your TV show. I get <laughs> up every time. I get up at 6:30 in the morning and I watch your TV show. You and on Big Sunday. Al are great. Right. I listen to the podcast. I've learned so much from that. He goes, "I'm really interested. I'm getting, you know, my CFP certificate. I'm going through this program at San Diego State. Do you think I could just spend 5 minutes of your time?" Of course. Yeah, right. Philip, come on in, buddy. Right? And the guy's a stud. Right? Yeah. He's uh, he's an he intern with us. He is. And uh, just offered the guy a, a full-time position with the firm. There you go. There's a little secret <laughs> for you uh, people that are trying to get in business. That's a great way to do it. Right. And, uh, and I understand student loan debt. I had student loan debt. I paid for my own schooling. Um, and it's just a necessary evil, but you have to be a little bit smart about it. And I know we don't have a lot of younger individuals that listen to this. And we had um, Listen Money Matters, Andrew, on last week that right. that his podcast is really um, for the uh, the younger generation sure. of saying, hey, get your stuff together. You know, we can sit around, have a beer, but be responsible. Your money matters. And then just do it in more of a um, – because I think there's a lot of insecurity when it comes to money. And this is this article, even though you know it catches your eye, STD. I don't know why it cut, cut my eye, but whatever. <laughs> you know, but it's like okay. Well, most people would rather say yes, I have a really gross disease, versus telling you, you know what, I got about fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt. I'm much, I feel more comfortable talking about that. That proves that there's an issue, there's a problem in all ages when it comes to money. It's this weird thing that we have because it's so important for us to do our everyday life. But we also need to approach our fears, I think, and identify what do I need to do to be successful. So if you're 65, 70, looking to retire, do you got your you know um, ducks in a row? Or if you're just getting out of college and you're buried in student loan debt, what are the strategies that you need to do? So I think it always boils down to a plan, a strategy on how to tackle all this. want to get into um, Alan's favorite part of the show. It's called Big Al's crazy list my list what do you think about that title well i like the way it's a work in progress I, yeah i like the way we got we need some more marketing help that doesn't sound very cool and here's a kind of a startling statistic nearly 60 percent of america's americans don't have wills right 60 percent only 40 percent have a will or a trust and then when you break it down even further baby boomers are yeah they're okay 58 percent have a will or trust 81% of those 72 and above, that's better. But Gen Xers, Joe, your generation, only 36%, and millennials, only 20%. So we've got some work to do when it comes to estate planning, and I think most estate planning attorneys recommend that, uh, boy, I mean, once you're, certainly by the time you're going to college, you need at least a basic will. And and if you die without a will, what happens is the uh, your assets are distributed in accordance with state law which may or may not be what you want. And also, if you have kids, they're going to go to however the state thinks they should go, not not necessarily what your wishes are. Well, I know you got a list there, but question for you. What do you think? What advice would you give? I mean, when would someone want to consider looking for a full-blown estate plan? Uh, full, full-blown estate plan. Let's say you have a trust and all the bells and whistles. and. Yeah, I think, Joe, in California, which is where we're at, I think... Once you have children and or once you own real estate, I think a, a living trust is appropriate. And the reason I say that is because you basically have two choices. You can have a will-based estate or a trust-based estate. And we're not estate planning attorneys. No, we're not. We're not. Full disclosure. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. So basically that means don't listen to a thing he says because... <laughs> Anyway, but a will-based estate just simply means that your assets get distributed in accordance to your with your will. Uh, it's not it's a it's a legal document, but you have to go through court to get it to be official. That's called probate, and probate, Joe, can be 
4% of your state, 5%, 6% of your state, just depends upon the dollar. So amount. I think that's why younger people don't necessarily, oh, I don't have any assets, I'm, you know, yeah, right. whatever. Right. right. But yeah, I think as soon as you, you get married, have a chill, you know, have some children, or if you buy a, a, a primary residence, uh, because if I have IRAs and 401ks or things like that, and I'm starting out my job, okay, well, that has a direct beneficiary designation that can go to, you know, whoever that you name right on that form. But then if I have assets outside of those retirement accounts, that's where things get a little bit tricky. So right. what's, uh, what, what do you so got? I've let's got my, let's uh, blow out a couple of these. I got my estate planner's 11 tips for the new year, which I don't think we'll do all of these, but we'll, we'll hit a few of them. And I guess the first one is says write a letter. In other words, write a letter of instructions. Even though you got the full-blown estate plan, you got the trust, you got the wills, you got the financial power of attorneys, you got the healthcare directives, you should have a letter of instructions for things that are not necessarily in there, like where you've stored you know, sensitive documents, maybe what those passwords are, what you want to do with certain you know, I don't know, photos, pictures, and mementos in your home, that sort of thing that's not necessarily part of that estate. So my uh, grandmother uh, recently passed. She was in her 90s, and she named my father and my uncle uh, the successor trustee. My grand- Well, when my grandfather passed away, then she named my dad and my uncle uh, co-successor trustees. Okay, Right. The first mistake. Because what would happen when my father and his brother would get along or get together, you know, family get togethers, you know, at the barbecue, throwing down a couple of beers, they would start, you know, already planning grandma's death. Well, this is what we're going to do. No, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. We're going to, right? So they would argue and fight. And then lo and behold, uh, my father dies. And then a couple of months after that, my uncle dies. Right. And then so my grandmother, who does she go to? She goes to you. Yeah, yours truly. Yeah. And you know what I told her? I said, no way. The last two people that had that job are dead. That's a, <laughs> that's a terrible job. <laughs> that's a, that's dangerous. I'm, I'm worried. <laughs> so anyway, I took the job, right? You did anyway. But she had she was a quilter, right? She she quilted a lot of stuff. Sure. And she had a lot of arts and crafts. Right. And you know, all these different mementos. Right. And so when she passed away, we're at the house. And so my aunts are there, and they were like, Well, where's the letter? And I was like, I don't know what the, where is, the, I, you tell me. Well, well, she said that she was going to like put little sticky notes on all these different quilts on who they were going who to they go, were to. go to. Yeah, it never happened. Didn't happen. Right. So oh then they're like, well, no, I want that. I want that. Oh I want. Yeah. Right. So what it, it would take you? Half an hour maybe to bust that thing out? Sure, so yeah, it's, yeah. from personal experience, it's very, very important. It just stops all the, you know, unnecessary drama after, you know, someone passes. You should be mourning and celebrating the life versus right. bickering about who's going to get a stupid quilt. You know, that's so true. I've got a story, too. My grandmother passed away several years ago, and she liked to collect plates. Sure, yeah, or yeah. spoons and Spoon, knives, whatever, whatever, whatever it may be, right? So she, I guess, there's a whole community of people out there where you get these designer plates, and they're they're superimposed on them as like a, fo- uh, a painting or something. They got, and she had, I don't know how many plates she had. A lot. It was in the thousands, I th- oh, believe. Thousands? I think so. Wow, she was a plate. <laughs> However, not all of them were like valuable, but sure. the ones that were valuable, I remember when we went up to. Her apartment after she passed and it was my dad and my uncle and several family members from both sides and every single plate that had value had a sticker on the back with a name on it oh so she was tight she on was it. tight yeah and so i have my still have my plates oh there you go yeah very cool yeah they're in the garage <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanksgiving they came out that, yeah if i could find them <laughs> But anyway, that was very sweet of her, and I, I I know where they are, and I can always look at them if I want to. <laughs> However, when it comes to estate planning, which is a nicer way of saying death, by the way. Yes. Yep. But uh, estate planning is not always about death. It could be true. about disability. It Boy, that about... that's true. In fact, Joe, when you get when you get a living trust, it's not just for your passing. A living trust has a lot of living documents, this including is not legal advice. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Including a financial power of attorney, which here's why this is important. Like, let's say, let's say you get injured and you're incapacitated, and all of your, your, you and your spouse's money is in your IRA. 
Well, unless there's a financial power of attorney, your spouse doesn't have access to your IRA, so they got to get a court uh, approval on that. Right. Right. Conservatorship. Yeah, conservatorship. And so a financial power of attorney takes care of that. And then health care directives, <laughs> that's really important, too, because if something happens to your spouse, the doctors may or may not want to even talk to you without yeah. those directives. HIPAA, um, if you've, it's not the animal, but, right, the Health Insurance Portability <laughs> Accountability HIPAA, Act. never that. HIPAA, right? HIPAA. Yeah. Got it. it. Yeah, that's very important, too, when it comes to medical records they won't even share it with spouses so there's a lot of different documents that you have and uh what's next? so so anyway so to, here's some things you got to consider with regards to estate planning one is to review and potentially revise your beneficiary uh designations and joe that is so important because sometimes people name let's say their parents mm-hmm. years ago and they're now passed away or they named a spouse and they've gotten divorced and they think that they, they got all this estate planning done, they got the trust that it says everything goes to their current spouse and kids, whatever. But no, not when it comes to IRAs, 401ks, Roth IRAs, it's the beneficiary designation that supersedes the trust. Right, um, 401ks under ERISA law, so your current spouse will be the beneficiary of that account, but not IRAs and not 403Bs, so be careful there. Oh, so, okay, stand corrected. So let's say if you have an IRA, individual retirement account, you had an old 401k, or you're retired. Most people will, like, once they get later in age, they'll have IRAs versus 401ks because most people will want to consolidate. You don't have to by any stretch, but I think that's what most people do. But that IRA, right, that is, you can name a different beneficiary there than your spouse. And so if you have an ex-spouse, and especially if, if you have like a Brady Bunch type family, Right. So what that means is that, hey, I remarried. I have kids from a, a previous spouse. Maybe my new spouse has kids from their ex-spouse. And then when you look at retirement accounts, it's like, well, I want to make sure that my current spouse is taken care of. But then, hey, if she were to pass, I don't necessarily want that money to go to her kids or his kids. I want it to go to my kids. So it gets complex. So you absolutely want to make sure that you understand, A, what is the law when it comes to beneficiary designations? And I think that's one of the most important estate planning documents that we have. And and most people overlook it or they don't necessarily truly understand the power of it because what Al said is that that supersedes your living trust. It supersedes a divorce decree. I mean, there's a, that is it. it. That is the document. Right, and we have seen cases like that where the money went to some other place than was certainly intended. Joe, another one is is uh, sharing your passwords, and this this would be akin to maybe adding that to your letter of instructions that we just talked about. And I don't share your passwords with everybody, but for you have a have a special document that shows your critical passwords. It's it's in a place where the the, the important people in your life know where it is, and they can go to it and access it if they need to. Right, and boy, uh, you, you talk about nowadays. It seems like everything is online and and uh, and digital and without passwords. Going back to you know you're incapacitated. How's your spouse going to even pay the bills? Doesn't even know how to get into online banking. Right. Yeah. Checkbook. <laughs> Never heard of that. <laughs> you know, what, what's the most common uh, password? Uh, password. Yeah. yeah. That's the word password. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who's on first? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Or one two three four five six. You got to get a little bit more creative there. Yeah, at least do five, four, three, two, one, right? Or something. (laughs) But it's crazy. It's like, and I have this sheet of paper in my office. Uh, Well, it's actually in a safe. If anyone's listening, it's, it's, it's in his front, it's his top drawer. Yeah, top, All it's, your it's, passwords. It's, it's basically on a sticky note. <laughs> but it's, yeah. at, it's right next to your computer monitor. Yeah, it's on my computer monitor. Critical passwords. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> Confidential. <laughs> do not read. Yeah, yes. Right. And uh, I mean, how many passwords do you have? It's, oh, it's so rid- annoying. It's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, the, 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 what most people do, which we shouldn't do, is just kind of get a password that we like. Yeah, and oh, just keep like using my, it over and over again. Oh, my Apple password? I had to restart my Apple phone like five times because it's like, well, what the hell is it again? And I, oh, man, I really want to get this app. Declined, <laughs> declined, declined. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I, I know where my passwords are. They're in this app. Well, what's the password to get into this app? Damn yeah. it. Well, it's it's so funny. We talk about our iTunes and Apple password with with Anne. She, she's um, 
I would say that some of this stuff, I mean, she's a people person, not a, not a technical person. And the, the, all this whole password stuff and her, her Apple account, we have changed the password so many, many, many times. because, And then you forget it, and so then you have to reset it, and you do something different. And, and, and they say, well, you can't use the same one as last time. And, oh, I didn't know that was the one. And so then you redo it, and, and then now she still tries to get on. And she's, she's putting in her Google password for Apple. No, that's Google. Well, it's like, this is confusing. According to this article, there are apps out there where you can track your passwords. Like, they recommend a, a, an app called Keeper Security. Yeah. Keeper Security. I haven't used that. Um, I actually got one of those apps, and it was too complicated. <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> so what I did is I, I have all my passwords on my phone and notes but i have learned how to password protect my notes oh there you go so with my finger <laughs> oh wow so you, i suppose if i'm lying there on the ground you can <laughs> yeah. put my finger yeah, on I'm the gonna, phone. Well, which one which finger is it club <laughs> i'm not saying you have to try all 10 <laughs> <laughs> so here's another one this is important right by <laughs> by burial plots there you go <laughs> oh, but if it, i want to get cremated it well then by a cremation service i suppose <laughs> Uh, That's a big business. I guess. Yeah, yeah. But uh, here's, how about this? Reviewing life insurance. I, and I think that's certainly important for a lot of people, especially you think about why you have life insurance. If you are the main provider, you know, for, for the finances for the company, from, or from, for your family, I should say, from your salary. And if something happens to you, your family would be in trouble. That's why you have life insurance. I mean, I, most of you right now listening to this are way underinsured. Um, and I know life insurance, it's like, oh, do I really want to get it and this and that? But you know what? Once you get life, right, just get maybe a 10, 20, 30-year term policy. You don't right. have to do all this funny business when whole life, variable life, and anything else like that. You know, it's very cheap and expensive. But what I've found doing this um, for many years is that there's a, there's a sense of relief. You know, it's like, okay. I travel a lot for work. I do this. I like to do that. You know, I do different activities that, you know what? I have a family. I'm the breadwinner. And once you get it, it's all of a sudden, okay. You know, now I kind of feel that, hey, well, I'm the provider of the household. Or both of spouses are providers. Get Just make sure that you get it. Get something cheap. Be careful with um, group insurance um, when it comes to life insurance. I, I, I Don't ignore it if your company offers it. But in most cases, unless you get hit by a truck, right, you're going to get sick first. You're going to leave your job because you're sick, because you're on your deathbed, and then you pass. So it's not going to cover you. Right. So you want a standalone policy. Like I said, get a term policy. Go with an independent agent. Shop it around. Um, but once you do get it, uh, trust me, I, you, you will feel better. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your financial questions. Email info at purefinancial.com. This is from uh, George. Okay. I have a question regarding Roth conversions. I'm in my 40s. And have $170,000 in rollover IRA and $50,000 in Roth. Should I withdraw the money from the Roth IRA to pay the conversion taxes today and convert the rollover IRA so future growth and withdrawals are tax-free? Is the goal to do this quickly as possible or does it matter if it takes 15 years? Let me know your thoughts. Well, to, first, let's explain a conversion. Okay, all right, that sounds good. So, a Roth conversion is when you have money in the IRA, which you have one hundred seventy thousand dollars in a roll uh, rollover IRA. You're allowed to t to convert all or part of that in, at any given time to a Roth IRA. You will pay tax on what you convert, but once it sits in the Roth IRA, all future growth income and even principal is tax-free for you, your spouse, and your kids. So whoever gets this Roth, whether it's you or someone else, eventually it's tax-free to them. The downside is you got to pay the tax. So a couple things is number one is you want to be cognizant of your, your your tax bracket, right? So if you're, let's say you're in the 25% bracket and you've determined you'll always be in that bracket or maybe even higher later, well, convert up to the top of the 25% bracket. Maybe that's $10,000, maybe it's 30000 You wouldn't want to do all 170 because that would put you in a too high of a tax bracket. The second thing is it's highly recommended that you pay the tax with non-retirement funds. 
Okay, so what that means is you would have money in your savings account, in your trust account, your brokerage account, outside of retirement. That's the best funds to actually pay the tax with, right? Because then you've got the you've got as much money in the Roth as possible. Now there are cases where you don't have money in your savings account and trust account to do that. It's a little bit trickier. You may actually have to use a little bit of your Roth money or your rollover money, but then you're sort of defeating the purpose. So in that, if that's the case, it's going to just take a little bit more analysis, I would say. Yeah, but I think, George, this is what I would do. Um, depends. All right, so you're in your 40s. Let's just say you're 40, right? Um, and you got 170000 bucks. Well, let's say you do 10000 bucks a year. Just first of all, look at your tax return. What tax bracket are you in? Right? And that's line 43 on the tax return. And so it's second page of your 1040 halfway down. Take a look at that and then look at the tax tables to see how much room that you have in that current bracket. Then convert to the top of it. Or maybe you just want to do a, a smaller amount. Maybe you don't necessarily have to max out the brackets because you're young. Right? So you got, you got plenty of time. You got plenty of time. Let's say if you want to retire at 60. Well, you got 20 years to get the $170,000 into that overall account. So you could do, I don't know, seven, eight, ten thousand bucks a year, right? Pay a little bit of tax, pay a couple thousand bucks in tax to do that, and just change your withholdings on just, your. Just cash flow it with, yeah, your, with cash, your salary. You got yeah. it. Cash flow it with your. Because then you just think of it like this is that, well, each conversion that I make of that 10000 and then I pay a few thousand dollars in tax, well, I change my withholdings a little bit. I'm not going to have a huge tax bill at the end of the year, right? And it's just, it might work out pretty good that way. Now you have a large chunk of money because that each dollar that you put in there is going to grow 100% tax free for you. You already have 50 grand. I would hate to see it, you know, take the money out of the Roth to pay the tax yeah, uh, you, you, because you have so much time. Yeah, you, you sort of go backwards. and, and, some... and you, But here's a, here's a rule too. So people are thinking, well, he's in his 40s. He can't take the money out of the Roth. Not necessarily, because Roth IRAs have FIFO tax treatment, first in, first out. So any dollar that you put into the Roth IRA, you can always pull out tax-free, no matter what your age is. That has nothing to do with 59 and a half. That's your money. But the growth of that money needs to season in the Roth IRA until you're 59 and a half to pull that out tax-free, or five years, whichever is longer. Yeah, and we should say that's relating to contributions. Contributions. Not conversions. Conversions have a different rule. But if you do a, a Roth contribution, you can always pull that money out well before. 55 and a half or 59 and a half. Right. And the conversions. So if you did a conversion, let's say at 40, right? If I did a conversion at age 40, I still have access to that conversion money before 59 and a half, but I just have to wait five years. Right. So I'd have to wait until I was 45 to take that conversion dollar out. If you're going to wait, if you're going to need the money in five years, don't do the conversion to begin with. So yeah, there's two different five-year clocks when it comes to conversion dollars. Another thing, if you're under 59 and a half, and if I'm doing a Roth IRA conversion, some people will withhold taxes. Because anytime you might say, all right, well, here, I'm going to convert. I, I, I talked to my custodian or maybe your advisor that's not necessarily familiar with tax law and say, hey, I would like to convert you know, 20,000 bucks. All right, well, how much would you like to withhold? Because you're going to have to pay taxes on that. Well, I don't know. Let's withhold 20%. All right. Well, now you just blew yourself up because that withholding, right? They're going to withhold that for taxes. That's that's not qualified as a qualified distribution. Right. So you that, get a 10% penalty on that withholding. Enough. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. A couple more thoughts for George. Sometimes people get bonuses at year end or first quarter, whatever it may be. Instead of spending your bonus, use your bonus money to help pay the Roth tax, right? That's one thing. Also, sometimes people get tax refunds because they have too much withheld use that tax refund to pay the tax that's you don't want to use your Roth IRA to pay the tax right just find any other means possible and if you don't have I mean we gave you some pretty good ideas and if if, if the last resort is to pull from the Roth and I wouldn't do it at all yeah I, I agree with that it's that time again Al we got Don Benioff he's on the line he's from Vanguard Vanguard is the largest mutual fund company. He works as a senior investment strategist uh, for the investment strategy group over there. Uh, he's a CFA, chartered financial analyst. He's written many articles. And so this article that I'm very interested in, it's called Advisor Alpha. And so instead of Al and I talking about it, I thought, let's just go to the horse's mouth. Let's get Vanguard on the phone and see, uh, you know, where did the genesis of this whole article come about? And so that's why Don Benioff is with us. So Don, welcome to the show my friend. Well, thanks very much for having me. Hey, just give our listeners just a, a little bit about your background 
and then we can kind of dive into this this article about Advisor Alpha. Uh, sure. Um, the last 19 years I've spent uh, at Vanguard, um, uh, primarily in the role I'm uh, currently in as a strategist. Um, prior to that, I was uh, a financial advisor myself for about seven years. So um, we try and wear both hats from uh, from both the advisor perspective as well as maybe the industry perspective too. You know, Vanguard's the largest mutual fund company. I think you um, brought in like $47 trillion last month. Um, well, give or take. <laughs> give, give or take a couple of bucks. Um, and, and a lot of people use Vanguard more as a self-directed type vehicle. Um, but I thought it was very interesting in a very well thought out article of, you know, talking about maybe on the advisor side of things. And I know that Vanguard now is, is developing um, more um, more advice-driven uh, type programs. But let's dive into Advisor Alpha. What actually is it? Uh, quite simply, it's uh, just trying to help advisors explain uh, their value proposition. Um, uh, we've been providing, as a, as a former advisor, um, we certainly always believe that advisors can add some value. Vanguard itself hasn't always uh, been quite as enthusiastic about supporting advice because most of the time it was done in a transaction-based relationship, and more and more it's in a fee-based relationship. For many advisors, we were hearing that they were struggling with their value proposition because in a fee-based world, clients wanted to know what they were going to get for that advice, and sometimes the best uh, strategy or the best move for the portfolio is to not move anything around in response to the market, right? So a lot of a lot of advisors were were looking for some help in that regard, and we thought we could we could help them. So the advisors alpha, as we see, is the framework for how an uh, an advisor can add value to the relationship. Uh, and in many cases, we just believe that it's not about so much investment uh, strategies per se, but the advisor themselves, them them being part of the picture uh, to help guide investors through those. Uh, those uh, overly good or overly bad times that can really make a difference and where the advisor can add uh, uh, a lot of value in the relationship. You, you know, you look at um, the behavior gap. Um, you know, Dalbar does their study, and you take a look at the average investment return versus the average investor return. And it's funny, every year that that thing comes out, it's shocking to me that we still uh, tend to buy and sell at the wrong time. And I think you're right. Um, one of the main focuses of a good you know, fee-only financial advisor is really to understand the client's needs, wants, you know, risk tolerance, cash flow needs, taxes, and everything else in between. Uh, but then coach them through those bad times. And it, it, it's still funny t- that the, the the differential of the investment return versus the investor is staggering. It's the, the, it's not even in the same ballpark. Uh, yeah, it's it's a real challenge, and we do see that is really a, a, a people problem. So. It, um, quite frankly, it's one of the things we talk to advisors about just as much as we do to uh, individuals um, from the standpoint that, that people all have uh, a tendency to believe a lot of the press they hear or maybe some uh, they, they react uh, overly conservatively by, by um, taking in some of the headlines, whether it's um, Brexit or the U.S. elections or um, you know, the events of Fukushima, they see those things as, as um, very significant and they react to them. Um, but really those are, those are the headlines in the marketplace, but really don't have anything to do with their portfolio, which was built by advisors typically, um, you know, based on what the, the client said were their most important goals, um, how they felt about risk and so forth. So, we do uh, a lot to try and help people see that as a behavioral challenge and help advisors and investors understand that they should react to the, the headlines in their, their lives when they're approaching retirement or they have a child or they're planning for college uh, rather than reacting to the headlines in the news. Yeah, Don, you, about a year ago, you did write that investors should pay attention to the headlines of their lives, not the headlines in their news in the news. And I think that's so true, but still... We're emotional, right? We we want to we, we want to react to the headlines in the news, and so how do we how do we combat that? It's a great question, um, and it's a great it's a great challenge. Um, uh, we do see information um, as something that needs to be taken in. We don't we're sort of surrounded by it, 
We live in sort of that instant news culture, whether it's coming across uh, the television or our smartphones. Um, we now a lot of investors have the ability to to do transactions right on their smartphone after they get uh, a, a, a text or an email um, about whatever just happened. They're, they're easy access to, to executing on it or doing something about it. So it is a challenge. We like to think that, that investors, um, like most people, um, can, probably, can probably benefit from having a coach involved, having an advisor involved. Um, it takes a really unique person to have the discipline to set, a, set all that aside uh, and not need some help along the way. So keeping people in their seats, I guess, is, is, is a component of Advisor Alpha. What other components uh, did you guys look at? Well, there are some things regarding uh, investment strategies, um, you know, helping people to find the, the asset allocation uh, that's right for them. Um, many people get tempted to try for the highest returns, and sometimes they, they really don't need them. Um, we like to, to uh, look at it from the standpoint of investors should be focused or setting their benchmark for success around the required return, which is based on those goals and objectives from the financial plan and the things that the investors said they were really, you know, most interested in being successful um, in, in trying to achieve. Uh, but, but I do think, you know, there's, so there's the, the asset allocation, there's investing cost effectively, um, not only just from the expenses of products like mutual funds and ETFs, um, but also considering taxes and what you might do to lessen, uh, lessen the, the, the tax bill that ends up getting uh, uh, sent to Uncle Sam. Uh, well, so there's uh, there's a number of a number of different uh, means for for adding value just beyond the behavioral coaching. Hey, and we're going to have that article on our website, Advisor Alpha. It's by Vanguard. Hey, I, I got another quick question for you because I know that you've done a lot of work with target date funds, and we get a lot of questions on target date funds. And can you you know help our listeners to see, all right, who would be a good candidate for a target date fund? Or is everyone a good target for a target date fund? And maybe what are some of the pros and cons of those? Yeah, I think um, to, to start at the beginning, I think anyone can be a good candidate for target date funds. Um, most of them are constructed more similarly than differently. So paying attention to the cost certainly uh, is, is one factor you might consider. But most of them follow some sort of uh, uh, glide path where, you know, earlier as a younger investor, they have a higher equity allocation and gradually that uh, declines to something more balanced as you approach or uh, enter retirement. So I think, I think anyone can benefit from a structure like that. Uh, but that being said, it's not the only choice. There are other choices out there. So there are, uh, that is what, you know, as you said, a, a target date fund or a target retirement uh, uh, offering. There are also things like target risk funds. They may be your more traditional asset allocation type of funds where there's a blend of different stocks and bonds and maybe cash, uh, things like that. The main difference between those is that the target date fund really only requires you to know your re expected retirement date and let the rest of it work for you. You just pick the, the plan or the, the fund that works for that date. On the other hand, when you start to move into an asset allocation-like product or a target risk product, um, now, you're, now you have to do a bit more self-assessment and understand your risk and reward dynamics and figure out what asset allocation is right for you, too. So um, target date products can be a, 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 a useful tool for uh, most anyone, but they're certainly not the only option out there for investors. You know what I find? I, I think it's a great solution. Um, but I think still most consumers, I, I don't think they know how to use them because typically we'll see someone that will use five different target date funds. And it's like, well, what target date are you shooting for? Right. I mean, they're kind of miss, oh, maybe, maybe you can help me clarify, but um, my understanding is if you're going to use a target date fund or target retirement fund, all the money should go in that fund because with the program itself, it's basically allocating your entire portfolio appropriately towards your target date of retirement. But if I have a target date fund of 2025, 2030 and 2040, I mean, isn't that defeating the purpose a little bit? Um, we tend to say yes. Um, uh, we, we tend to structure uh, our target date funds with a, sort of that five years, as you said, you know, 2025, 2030, 2035. Not everyone does, though, so it is sort of 
subject to the funds that you have uh, available to you. So if you if you don't have those, uh, say you're retiring in 2025, but you only have a 2020 and a 2030 option, um, you could sort of understand that. I don't think people need to overthink uh, that aspect uh, of the, the planet uh, uh, too much, though. Um, I think really the, the, the heavy lifting for retirement planning and, and so much of investing is in the choice to save at all. Um, I think the asset allocation and things like that um, tend to be the beginning, but I think actually the, that aspect of saving and investing to begin with is, and saving to your retirement account uh, tend to get overlooked in terms of their significance. Yeah, no, I think that's well said, Don. Um, I, I think the bigger problem is people not necessarily saving enough versus, you know, how cute I can get with my asset allocation or, you know, should I pick a, a you know, target date fund versus my own allocation? You know, when you're only dealing with, you know, 14000 bucks and I'm 65 looking at retirement, it, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it's definitely one of those things where I wish people would spend more time figuring out how to, to eke out an extra you know percentage or two um, to their their retirement contributions uh, rather than worrying as much about the right asset allocation in the end uh, it's really the savings and contribution that um, do most of the heavy lifting for our investment portfolios hey Don I appreciate your time um, any last words of wisdom uh, for our listeners um, I, I appreciate the opportunity I, I think um, uh, we'd certainly like to encourage people to um, contact us or their advisors for questions. I think people have resources available to them and they have good questions, but sometimes they're reluctant to actually act on them, um, and therefore they do the best that they uh, feel like they can with, <laughs> with, with information or familiarity they have, but maybe they could lean on the uh, experts a little bit more uh, if only to just help direct them towards more education to help them along. Great stuff. That's Don Benioff. He's from Vanguard. He's a CFA. Um, smartest guy in the room right now, Big Al. You usually say that about me. <laughs> not not this time. <laughs> no, we got a lot smarter guy than you. He brings up a lot of good points. And, and we know this from being advisors that uh, the tendency for advisors is to get very emotional when there's negative headlines. And when there's negative headlines, we tend to pull out of the market, right? And then we tend to get back in at, at when things seem really good. And so what, what you're doing in that situation, you tend to end up buying high because things are good and you tend up selling low when things are down. So and, what, I mean, what would you think of the interview? I'm just well. I'm getting there. <laughs> was it good? Was it bad? <laughs> it's fantastic. It's, but that, but that's but, when. But that's Vanguard's what, pretty big company. So it is. That, but that's you what, can't re, you can't really say much. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what do you think target date funds? Well, I think they're appropriate for everyone, <laughs> or maybe they're not appropriate. So, right, but I get it. I mean, I think there's a lot of different things. Um, I thought he was great. I yeah, like Don. Yeah, me um, too. So no. you didn't let me finish. I'm sorry. Go he ahead. was great. End of story. <laughs> now it's time of the show, folks, for the email bag. I love this part of the show. I know it's great. So what do you you got? You got some good. You know ones? why I love this part of the show so much? Why? Because there's zero pre preparation. <laughs> and people think we've heard and prepared for these questions. You haven't read them. I haven't heard them. So this is off the cuff. I just printed it off the printer. Yeah. Right before we yep. we, went we on. think it's more honest that way. Yeah. Right. It's not a rehearsed answer. This no. is this is if you came into our office and asked us this question. This is this what we'd say. This is what you'd get. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here you go, Big Al. This is a good one for you. Okay. Um, and these are from um, Advisor Insights Investopedia. These are not from our clients. I disclose when they come from our listeners. Okay. Yeah. Or our clients um, because. Those questions are usually more well thought out. <laughs> of course, because our listeners and our clients. Yeah. Yes, are very sharp. Yes, they are. Because they listen to your money or what. The ones that ask questions in Investopedia? Well, they're, kinda, they're just they're, hit, hit or miss. Hit or miss. Yeah. Yes, hit or miss. Like this one. <laughs> How will my profits and loss from day trading oh. be taxed at the end of the year? Okay. All right. So how's my profit and loss from day trading tax at the end of the year? I also have a job, and I'm always in the 15% tax bracket. If I make a profit from trading while I work, and my earnings from trading and working stay within the 15% tax bracket, will I be taxed the same? Oh, Miguel, what do you got? Interesting, yes. Uh, 
Well, day trading, gains and losses, those are short term. You probably have more losses than gains. Well, yeah, probably. I'm, I'm going to go I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're one of the ten, one out of 10 that has gains. One and, out of 1000. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll address both. So if you have gains, it's it's short-term capital gain which is taxed at ordinary income rates. And so if you're in the 15% bracket, it's taxed at 15%. 25% bracket, it's taxed at 25%. So that's how that works. There, there is something called a trader designation in the IRS, and I won't get into all of that right now, but if you do a lot of trading, you might qualify for that, which can allow you to take you know, some ordinary losses on these types of things if you have losses. Because otherwise, if you're just a day trader kind of dabbling in it, the losses are considered capital losses. You can only offset capital losses with capital gains. So it's not like you can deduct them against your salary. The IRS says you can deduct gains against losses, and if you still have excess losses will let you take three thousand dollars per year but that's that's it yeah but that loss could offset that gain dollar for dollar if you had if you had a gain that's right right that's but right here's but, the problem but, yes okay it's something that's called anchoring heard of that yes so let's say th this individual bought the stock for fifty dollars per share okay and it goes down to thirty dollars per share he's a day trader right so he's like grinding this thing out. He wants to make some money. So that thing goes down to $30 per share. Do you think he sells that stock? Uh, no, because he doesn't want to loss. Right. And he's going to wait until when till he sells it? When it's $51. Yes! <laughs> it's like the stupidest thing ever, right? But no, that's what we do. It's like, well, no, it's I bought it at 50 It's down to 30 I'm not going to take the loss, but I'd rather take the gain on this one, pay ordinary income tax versus taking the loss on the other one and netting it dollar for dollar, right? And then you could buy back the, the, the stock 31 days later, whatever. You know, interestingly enough, if you just do this the, how we would suggest, which is long-term hold, if your gain Boring. is it, it, yes, but it works. If your gain is for a year or longer, then the capital gain rate is actually zero, zero. when you're in the normally fifteen percent bracket. Right. The guys in the fifty percent tax bracket just hold on to it for a year, make that profit there. If you're such a good stock picker, yeah, pick, right? a, yeah, pick right. the right ones, right. wait a year, sell in the fifteen percent tax pay, bracket, zero tax, tax free, right? Zero tax. Yeah. Email question number two. Okay, let's go for it. Can I still deduct the maximum amount of taxes on a traditional IRA if I contribute to a 401k plan is the header of the title of the email. Okay. I want to contribute to a traditional IRA for the tax write-off, but I contribute to my employer's 401k plan. Can I still get the maximum write-off on the traditional IRA? Big yeah. Al, what say you? Yeah, the, the answer is a qualified yes. Because you're allowed to do an IRA and a 401k at the same time. In other words, if you're under 50, uh, your maximum into the 401k is 18000 And you can still do an IRA, which is $5,500. But your actual ability to write, to, to take that as a tax deduction depends upon your income level. So if you're single, it starts phasing out at about $62,000 of adjusted gross income and goes, and by the time you hit 72,000 of income, then you can no longer deduct the IRA. You can still make the IRA, you just can't deduct it. So let me put that in real terms. So I'm single, I'm working, and let's say I make $70,000, but I max out the plan of okay. 18,000. Okay, good. All right, or let's say I make 68,000, okay. and I... <laughs> <laughs> and I max out the plan at $18,000. Okay, I like that. So 68000 right? But then the 401k, $18,000, that's deducted off what your taxable pay. So your W-2 says you made $50,000 taxable. That's below the 62000 so you can fully deduct the IRA. And this is actually a great strategy for those that are right on the bubble here, right? Which is if they go ahead and do a full 401k or more 401k, they can actually deduct more of the IRA if they want to. Right, and I think it only makes sense if I wanted to uh, double dip the deduction and say, max out the 401k first. Right. I've seen this where it's like, well, here, I'm putting money into my 401k to the match, and then I also want to deduct an IRA. Well, I get it maybe because what you want a different investment option in the IRA than in your 401k. That may make sense. Right. Um, but I think just do it out of the 401k plan, set it up to max that thing out, then start looking at other alternatives. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Joe. But let me just do it circle around. So if you're if you're married, these numbers are 99000 to 119000 to where you can deduct the IRA. But I completely agree with what you just said, which is if you've already maxed out your 401k, maybe you ought to be looking at a Roth IRA instead and get... 
some tax-free growth, but there's limits on that too, right? So if you are single, the ability to do a Roth contribution phases out at 118,000, it goes to 133,000, and if you're married, it's 186,000 to 196,000. So in other words, if you're below those numbers, you can do at least an, a partial or full Roth contribution. And that might be a better bet, right? Because now you got money in the 401k that's growing tax deferred, you got a tax deduction, but you also have some tax-free money. Right. And th- I think that's a major part of confusion is that, well, no, I cannot do an IRA or Roth IRA because I'm contributing to my 401k. You could double up. You can put money into your 401k and into a Roth IRA. Now, how about this, Al? How about if I'm maxing out my 401k plan and I have a little side hustle? Okay, yeah, sure. Okay. Can I also contribute to, let's say, a SEP plan or is like a self-employment plan? Yeah, so you've got a side business, you're making money. You're not allowed to do another 401k because that's that's on a personal, person-by-person basis. But unless, yes. I, unless I didn't max out the 401k. I oh, could probably, sure. So let's say sure. if I did $10,000 in my employer 401k and I have a side hustle, I could set up another 401k and put... Eight thousand dollars. That's in, correct. Up that, to the maximum. That's correct. If, if you so desired. But let's say you've maxed out your four hundred one k. Yeah, you can do a, SEP, a simplified employer pension plan or SEP, S E P for short. As a self-employed business person, you don't have to be incorporated. You can be, but you don't have to be. You can be a sole proprietorship. And by the way, the amount that you can put in is twenty percent of your bottom line profit. Right, so that's the formula. You make a hundred thousand dollars, you could put another twenty thousand dollars into a SEP IRA, and that's over and above your four hundred one k. It's also over and above your regular IRA, so you can potentially do all three of them. Here's another uh, question for you. I am currently sixty nine years old. My wife is sixty six. We are both retired. My wife begins receiving Social Security benefits this month, and I plan to begin receiving Social Security benefits when I reach age 70. Okay. At that time, our income will consistently uh, consist primarily of monthly pension payments as well as both of our Social Security payments. Right. We expect to live comfortably on this income alone. We both have significant amount of assets in various qualified plans, 401ks, 403bs, etc., and will be required to begin taking RMDs at age 70 and a half. What is the best way to leave the maximum amount of these qualified plans to our two adult children as they minimize the tax implications of the R&Ds for my wife and myself. Wow, this is like an all-star question of the month, huh? Gold star. <laughs> First of all, you get, you're doing a lot of things right. Now, I'll give you one suggestion before we get into the, the Roth, or the, the 401k, 403b, is uh, depending upon the numbers, you might want to have uh, your, your spouse take the spousal uh, of course, you'd have to wait till you're receiving your benefit, unless you <laughs> did some things last April. You know what? Well, he's 69, right? So it probably the numbers might jive for him to take his benefit and the spouse take the spousal benefit, yeah. and then her switch to her own that, benefit at age 70. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, they're three years apart, not four, but I think this still works out pretty well. Which, and the reason you would do that is because, yeah, the spousal benefit means you can take half of your other spouses. And then, but your benefit continues to grow. And when you take your benefit at age 70, it's a lot higher amount than if you had taken it at age 66. Something else that happens as a result of that is probably the social security payments will be a little bit less, which means your taxable income will be lower, which might allow you to do more Roth conversions before you hit your required minimum distributions at age 70 and a half. And so the main part of this question is, what's the best way to transfer these these, uh, retirement accounts to the kids? Well, the best way, bar none, is to get it into a Roth IRA because when they get it, it's tax-free to them. Of course, the problem was, which you always know, you're allowed to do a Roth conversion, but you have to pay tax on the amount that you convert. So if you can keep your income lower for these next few years, then you can actually do more in Roth conversions and stay in the same tax brackets. We find this problem a lot is that now they ask us at 69, yeah. <laughs> they see the problem next year sure. when they should have been asking this 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So so if if we take this the next step, let's just say they retired 5 years ago. 
then that would have been the best time to do this, right? Because right? all they had was their pensions at that point. They so, didn't have Social Security. They didn't have required minimum distributions. So I guess to get in the weeds just a little bit more on this question is that Al's suggesting to go into a Roth IRA, and that money will grow 100% tax-free for your life, and then when the kids inherit it, it's tax-free for their life. So that's a pretty cool thing. However, you, there's a couple of more you know, details that you want to make sure that you cover. You know, What tax bracket are you in? How big is your pensions and Social Security? Security, and then what tax bracket is your kids in, right? So if your kids are very successful and they're in large tax brackets, well, maybe it might not make sense because you might be paying more tax um, on your tax return um, or they would be paying more tax or whatever, right? You just got to take a look at the whole picture here. Sure. If they're in large tax brackets and you're in a low tax bracket, conversions make all the sense in the world. But if they're in very low tax brackets, right? So they're not doing that right. great. They're, you know, and, so and, if, and it's not expected to change. R- yes, right. And maybe that's the case because they're concerned or not. I don't know. So th- that's diving in a little bit more. You have to look at what tax bracket that you're in. How much room do you have in your tax bracket to determine, does it make sense to do the conversion? I would say 90% of the time in this fact pattern, it, it's absolutely the right decision to do the conversion. Yes, and something happens later on in life, sometimes when you need more medical care or you got to go into assisted living or long-term care. All those, the, in terms of long-term care, that's completely 100% deductible as a medical deduction. It puts oftentimes the parents in a very low bracket, and that's a great time to do Roth conversions as well. And then what happens with, well, let's say one spouse dies, and it sounds like they have a, a plenty of fixed income. Right, so it depends on the pensions. Do they have a hundred percent survivor benefit on those? You'll lose one of the Social Security benefits. But what we find too is that all right, well, both of my spouses, uh, both of my spouses. Whoa, this hey is, now, this is Utah. Yeah, welcome <laughs> to the show. <laughs> Let's say both spouses has a um, you know large benefit of large retirement accounts. Well, when spouse dies. They still have this large retirement account. The required distribution now is based on still this large amount. Right. Now they're at a single tax bracket. So all of a sudden, those RMDs are going to push them even to a higher tax bracket, and more of those dollars potentially could be lost to unnecessary taxes. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, last email question of the day. Okay. And this is an interesting question, so I'm going to ask a CPA this. Okay even though it has nothing to do with taxes. <laughs> Why do some great and well-known companies that sell a lot of products and services have a lower stock price uh, than other less profitable companies? Okay. For instance, Berkshire Hath- Hathaway, yes. with a stock price of 200000 for example. Apple, the most valuable company in the world, has a stock price of around one hundred twenty. Well, Berkshire's is 200. Why is that? (laughs) That's a a great question. And I think there's a lot of mystery when it comes to stocks and investments. So it's the reason it all has to do with the value of the company in relationship to the number of shares that are outstanding. And so if you have just a few shares and your company value is growing, right, then your stock price is going to be more. Here's what most companies do is they do stock splits, right? So all of a sudden there's 100,000 shares and they say, you know what? Let's make it 300,000 shares. So that's like a like a two to one, a three to one split, I guess is what you call that. So now you got three times as many shares as what you had before. What does that do to the stock price? It cuts it by three, right? And so the company value is always the same. It's the value of the company. Right. If the stock price was $100 a share, now it's 33 bucks. Yeah. If you, if you did that three to one split, right. right? That's how it works. And Berkshire Hathaway has not wanted to do stock splits. Well, they have two share prices. I mean, they have two classes of shares, too. You got class A, class B. Yeah. Yeah. Right, class A, he doesn't want to split. That's Warren for you, right? You're right. <laughs> so no, I'm not going to split it. So right, one shares two hundred grand. Right. But you can buy Berkshire f- for less than two hundred thousand. It's just the B <laughs> share class that is split. Yes. So yeah, it, it, you have to look at market cap. Mm-hmm. Right, and outstanding shares right. and times mar- and mar- the market cap means capitalization the va- value, of the-, the value of the company, the capitalization of the company. So you look at that. That's what's going to determine, right? 
but not necessarily the share price. Right. The, the share, pr- the share so price. So you multiply is, the share yeah. price by the outstanding shares, that gives you your market capitalization. Right. So if you have a ton of outstanding shares versus some like Berkshire Class A doesn't have a lot of outstanding shares. Right. And interestingly enough, when you look at new companies that do an initial public offering, an IPO, in general, they try to price the stock somewhere around $10 a share. You know, because it seems affordable. It seems affordable, right? And, and that's so, why people do, uh, that's why companies so, do stock splits. Yeah, so how do they do that? Well, they take what's the value of the company, let's let's divide it into how many shares so it's going to come out to 10 bucks a share or 20 bucks a share or whatever number they want to hit so that it's affordable. Right. And then, so you say, oh, it's $10 a share. Well, you know what? Let's make it $5 a share. So if I own one share of that stock at $10 a share, when they do the stock split, guess what? Now I get two shares at $5 a piece. So you have the same value. I still have the same value, yes. Right, right. So my, my brokerage account is not going to change. It's going to have the same market value, but now I have that many more shares. And if the stock price continues to go up, all right, that's good because I have more shares that are going to go up in value. So, yeah, that's a great question. It is a good question, and I think it's a, it's a complete mystery to probably a lot of people. Yeah, it's like, well, this is a lot better company because the share price is that much higher. Right. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Right. right? You got to take a look at the market cap. Yeah. Right. But then, what, which has higher expected returns in the overall market, if we will, really want to get deep here? Yeah. Are they lower price stocks or higher price stocks? <laughs> well, if you look at history, lower price stocks have a higher expected return based on market cap because, right? So the market cap could be the same. And what I mean by that, let's say you have company A and company B, their market capitalization could be the same. Right, or and then all of a sudden one is falling in value, right? Because of maybe out uh, underperformance. Sure, you know, in a given year or maybe in a certain area of the overall markets, that area like oil, for instance, right? A sector of the market is not performed, so that stock price goes down. So then you look at all right, well, which is going to give me a higher expected return, a lower price stock or a higher price stock? Well, over the long term, lower price stocks will outperform higher price stocks because they're more volatile, they're more risky, and you are compensated for that risk. So wow, um, you did get in the weeds there. I had to. I had (laughs) to. That is my job. Good for you. Those are. It's also known as value stocks, and that's what Warren Buffett invests in companies when they're on sale, when they're cheaper. A value stock, and value stocks do have a higher expected return over the long term, but on a year-by-year basis, they may not outperform, but over the long term, they tend to. Yes, and what, what value is, so you have to look at the book value of the company, right? So all companies have a book value, so you take a look at your equity, your assets, your liabilities, and everything else, and then you know an accounting firm says, well, here's your book value. But then market has a different opinion of that book value, Sure. right? So you look at book-to-price ratios, and if the, they say, you know what, the price is actually higher than what's on the books, well, that's more of a growth company. If they're saying, nah, you know what, it's a little bit lower than that, well, then that would be a value company. Value companies, as Al said, have a higher expected return long-term over the markets. It's called a risk premium. So you want to make sure how you invest is you take advantage of the risk premiums in the overall market. It's a cheaper way to invest. You can potentially get a lot higher rate of return. You can mitigate your volatility and so on and so forth. So, hey, that's it for us. We ran out of time. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, your email questions, and Big Al's list. Can't wait. So to recap today's show. Basic estate planning can save you and your family a lot of headaches later. A financial advisor can help you figure out your needs and wants, your risk tolerance, your cash flow needs, your tax situation, and they might be able to talk you off the ledge during the bad times. And for Generation Y, workaholism and serious death are more of a relationship deal breaker than STDs. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.